Kiora. I'm Damien Venuto. It's October 10th, and this is the front page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. For much of the election campaign, the focus has been solely on domestic issues, with questions on foreign policy during televised debates being quickly shut down. That changed this weekend after Palestinian militants attacked settlements in southern Israel, killing hundreds, taking hostages, and sparking harsh retaliation from the Israeli Defense Force. As our politicians exchanged back and forths about the crisis, questions were asked about New Zealand's stance on a two-state solution and what role this country can play in foreign affairs. And this is far from the only foreign policy concern our government will have to face. From ongoing wars and threats of more to come, to matters as simple as trade and our ties to major global players. Today, on the front page, University of Waikato professor of law and foreign policy expert Alexander Gillespie joins us to discuss why he wants to hear more about what positions our politicians have on matters of global concern. Alexander, can you explain what we're seeing happen between Israel and Palestine at the moment? In many ways, when you look at what's happening in around Gaza and Israel, it's difficult to distinguish one conflict from the other because since 2007, there's been a wave of violence. But what happened was unprecedented in terms of scale with the impact upon the Israeli citizens and also the atrocities were of an unseen magnitude. So what you saw over the weekend was the equivalent of a 9-11 event for the Israeli population. It was unforeseen and it was extreme atrocities. People who live in Israel generally have a sense that they are living in a place that's quite tense and things could kick off at any given time. But this was on a different level, right? In terms of scale, in terms of the amount of casualties, it was a different level. And also in terms of what actually happened, And we're still yet to get all the information that's out there. But I mean, seeing indiscriminate rocket fire is not unusual. But the amount of hostages that were taken was unusual. And the amount of people who may have been executed also seems a shockingly high number. And when you focus on particular events like musical festivals, where civilians are doing nothing but congregating for what should be a peaceful time, it adds to the the horror of the event. One of the strikes hit the 11th-story Palestine Tower. Just meters away from Al Jazeera's bureau, first a warning strike. And a few minutes later, complete destruction. Is there any concern here of war crimes being committed in terms of Hamas taking hostages and then also the severity of Israel's retaliation? You've got a sequence of war crimes that are happening right now. I mean, it's a war crime to execute anyone in a conflict, whether it's a a soldier or a civilian. It's a war crime to make hostages of civilians. And it's a war crime to be using indiscriminate bombardment of opposition territory where you don't try to distinguish between combatants and civilians. Similarly, you're likely to see a disproportionate response from Israel. And because it will be in an urban built-up area, that too could become a war crime in time. What have you made of the response from our politicians to this crisis so far? It's a difficult topic because everyone's trying to often pick a side over who's right and who's wrong and who's justified in what they're doing. And that's a mistaken way to be looking at it because our concern should be upon human suffering 
without recourse to which side's doing it to the other. There are basic rules of humanity that need to be adhered to, and what we saw over the weekend was a complete violation of those rules. Our foreign minister was correct to say international humanitarian law should be respected, but at the same time, when extreme atrocities have been caused, they should be called out. One thing we have noticed recently is a shift in international public sentiment with people becoming a lot more supportive of the Palestinian cause. Do you think this attack will shift those perspectives the other way? I don't think many people are aware of the difference between the ruling party Hamas in Gaza and those on the West Bank, and they're very different organisations, and even they can't reconcile. And so even though you may not be a supporter of Hamas, and we certainly shouldn't be, and they should be labelled a full terrorist organisation, with the Palestinian Authority, there is an argument to still keep supporting them. One of the few areas of foreign policy discourse that we have seen on the campaign trail this far has been Labour's pledge to invite the head of the general delegation of Palestine to Australia to present their credentials as ambassador to New Zealand. Obviously recognising the aggressive, unwarranted attacks that have happened in the last 48 hours, of course, we will consider that and the speed with which we action any further response around the recognition of Palestinian diplomats in New Zealand. Do you think that we'll still head in that direction given everything that's blown up now? No, I think it's too early to predict what's likely to happen. But I expect that the conflict around Gaza will get very bad. And that's because the Israeli forces will have to enter Gaza in a ground offensive. As that conflict has the potential to degenerate, the diplomatic world will also react. So it's not just with regards to whether New Zealand accepts the credentials of the Palestinian representative, but also the process of normalisation in the Middle East, where you've seen a number of countries starting to have normal relationships with Israel that may begin to disintegrate. And so the recent treaties that we've seen could end up being pushed to one side. There's also the possibility that the conflict could expand with regards to Lebanon. Iran is always a backer of the enemies of Israel. And that's why the Americans have just dispatched a carrier force to the Gulf. So do you think that this battle will linger and have severe diplomatic repercussions in the coming months? I think it's quite possible that this war could get very bad. And if the Israeli forces go into Gaza City, which is an urban environment, it could end up being very much like what happened in Lebanon in the 1980s, and it could become quite protracted. The irony is Hamas wants Israel to attack Gaza City. They want the urban environment because that way they can reduce some of the advantages that the Israeli military has. The problem is, is that when you're in an urban environment is that the division and distinction between civilians and combatants blurs very quickly and the death tolls will grow astronomically. Saturday morning, thousands waking up to sirens and explosions. More than 500 Israelis are dead, at least 2,000 injured in the complex Hamas military operation that took the nation by surprise. Overnight, Israel's answer to Hamas terror illuminates the night sky. The Palestinian health ministry says more than 300 Palestinians have been killed, nearly 2,000 others injured. As a military force, how powerful is Hamas? What do we know about how much military strength they have? Two things from the weekend is, one, their intelligence was much better than people had given them credit for. And two, the stockpile of rockets that they had was much greater than the projections suggested. They seem to have fired somewhere between 
two and a half thousand to five thousand rockets. And you must remember that the Gaza Strip is under blockade, so it's very difficult to get any material in. But clearly they're quite well armed and their technology in terms of cyber technology seems to have advanced quite quickly. In an open field, they're no match for the Israeli military, but in a rubble-like urban situation, it will become a much more difficult conflict. And the the high-tech advantages that the Israeli military has will be reduced. For the latest news from around the globe, head to nzherald.co.nz slash world. And be sure to follow the front page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. In our election campaign, there's been very little focus on foreign policy or any details of what foreign policy would entail under either a Labour or National-led government. Are you disappointed at all that foreign policy has not been a more serious concern for our major political parties? Very disappointed. I, I think that the global environment is very unpredictable right now. And there are a number of conflicts and situations occurring that require much greater attention on the part of New Zealand politicians, whether you're looking at the Ukraine, the Indo-Pacific, or indeed even what's happening in the Middle East right now. I think we need to look further afield and our politicians need to say this is what they would do or wouldn't do as the international world changes. There are certain things which are a clear manifestation of that, like whether more money would go to the New Zealand Defence Force, which agreements we would or would not join. One area that you've said you want to see more commentary on is defence. And as you've just mentioned, it it is a question of what we should and shouldn't be joining. So Australia, the US and the UK have created a military partnership that includes nuclear submarines. New Zealand obviously has a policy when it comes to anything to do with nuclear-powered devices, particularly when it comes to war machines. Do you think we need more clarity on what New Zealand stands for and who it's willing to work with and how far that relationship's willing to go? All of the Indo-Pacific is changing at the moment, and you're seeing new relationships, not just with the AUKUS agreement that you mentioned, but also new relationships with Japan, South Korea, Fiji, Australia. There's a lot of positioning going on. The AUKUS agreement is significant, not because we would want nuclear-powered submarines, because we don't, and there's no justification for them. But there's a second tier to the agreement, which will allow the signatories to access the next generation of weaponry, which would be artificial intelligence, hypersonic missiles, underwater vessels, not submarines, but defensive mechanisms. The argument to be involved with that is strong on one regard, because irrespective of where the New Zealand Defence Force gets deployed in the future, you want our people to have the best chances to defend themselves. The counter-argument is is that all of that new technology that may come from AUKUS might be available from other relationships as well, like our NATO friends. This all comes at a time where there does seem to be increased global tension. The Israel-Palestine conflict is not the only battle ongoing at the moment. You also have the war in Ukraine, recent conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Do we need leaders that are a lot clearer on where we are willing to supply conflicted areas with personnel or equipment, and also which causes we're going to support. For a long time, for the last 20 years, it's been pretty easy for New Zealand not to have to be too concerned about large geopolitical issues. I mean, we we were in Afghanistan and we were in Iraq as well, but on a relatively small supporting scale. But what you're seeing now is large 
challenges at the global level, like when you're talking about the Ukraine, New Zealand adopted a non-neutral position. We're not at war with Russia, but we are giving a lot of support to the Ukraine. We're helping train their military. When you're looking at the Indo-Pacific region, we've also used frigates in support of freedom of the seas navigation, whereby we've joined other like-minded countries going through disputed waters. And so we're in a position which is more volatile than it has been for decades. And this means that our politicians have to be aware that the risk to our country is growing and we have to be prepared to make some difficult choices potentially in the future. But these discussions aren't on the agenda. Whether you're talking about China or Taiwan or Russia, these are big issues that so far people prefer not to talk about. The tension also isn't limited to the areas that are in a state of conflict. It also comes down to the relation, our relationships with our historical partners. So there are some concerns at the moment of how the U.S. response to the Ukraine-Russia conflict could change should a Republican win the election next year. New Zealand has often been cast as soft on China compared to other Western pushback we've seen. Do we need to maintain a clear, independent foreign policy and make clear that while we are still juggling multiple conflict global partners and allegiances, that we know what we stand for in this big mix? That's a big question. If Mr. Trump returns to power, international order could become even more chaotic than it is right now. With regards to China, the challenge we have is not just in protecting the economic trade relationship we have, which is very good, and also the diplomatic relationship and finding areas where we have cooperation, which can also be very beneficial. It's about speaking with a clear voice when certain things occur that we disagree with. In terms of looking forward, the best thing you can hope for is that the political parties speak with one common voice on foreign policy. You don't want it to be a left-wing, right-wing thing. You want as much as possible for the main parties to say, this is where New Zealand stands and this is what we will defend and this is what we will invest in. But at the moment, most of those discussions are at a small level. And so like you can look at one topic, like the funding of the military. And so we're currently 1.5% of GDP. You should have both parties agree on whether it should go up and by how much. It shouldn't become a political football. We did see over the weekend some criticism from right-leaning parties of the response to the outbreak of violence in Israel. Prime Minister, by his own admission in his stand-up, said that he hadn't been in touch, essentially, or had the conversation with his foreign minister. I would have thought, with a big geopolitical tension point like that, first port of call would have been multiple conversations with your foreign minister. What values is New Zealand expressing by saying they're concerned about something that's broken out? This is an invasion targeting civilians. Do you think that that's concerning, that there isn't this consensus on these issues or that the responses from our government officials weren't viewed as severe enough by some? It was difficult over the weekend as information was coming in, but the basic principle that the foreign minister made that all sides should adhere to international humanitarian law is completely correct. The problem was, was that the scale of the atrocity that was occurring was not called out directly as it should have been. This becomes hard because often in New Zealand there's those people who are one side or another, and that's not the way it should be. We should focus on the international rules-based order, including humanitarian law, and call out civilian suffering and war crimes clearly wherever they occur.
Alexander, some would argue that there are more important domestic concerns to worry about this election and the global issue shouldn't be our focus. What's your response to that? I, I understand that argument because one of the things I argue for is that we need to spend more on our military so it's prepared. But every dollar you spend on the military is one dollar less you're spending on social housing. And there are opportunity costs which are difficult. But the way I see the world is that from the 1990s till about 2010, it was a relatively peaceful time and it made sense not to be concerned too much about the external threats. But now these threats are rising and it's not just in terms of the conflicts, it's in terms of the breakdown of the international architecture, whereby a number of treaties which gave us security and sustainability are no longer in place. And that's particularly the case with nuclear arms control and then you've got other areas which are completely unregulated, like artificial intelligence. New Zealand needs to be working out more how we position and defend our country against these potential threats. And these risks are, whether we like it or not, rising. And a responsible government will do its utmost to protect its citizens. And unfortunately, defence and security is part of that. Thanks for joining us, Alexander. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.